Welcome to the milk bar. 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 Welcome along to episode 588 of the milk bar. Jason Forrest here with you as ever. And coming up on this week's show, we'll have a chat with Marty Wilde about his brand new album and forthcoming single, where he's worked with, I think, all of his kids in getting this one together, including the single featuring Kim Wilde. Also, we'll be having a chat with Dick and Don because there is a survey out that tells us how much we enjoy being pranksters. And I think they're they're pretty much the original pranksters of our generation, aren't they? So we'll be hearing from them. Also, on top of that, we'll have a chat with Denise Van Outen about what's going on in her world and her forthcoming appearance on Dancing on Ice. Dr Hilary Jones will be joining us for a chat about TK Maxx's campaign to make sure we recycle a load of clothes and raise funds for cancer research at the same time. Plus, you'll be able to see the two interviews that I've done for Science of Cinema. If you haven't heard of this, you need to check it out. It's a fantastic online site, and normally it'd be an event in real life. Obviously, this year, things were a little bit different, but they've got some great stuff on their Facebook page, some brilliant interviews and chats with people who have been part of the world of cinema in some way or form. To that end, we'll be having a chat with Toby Philpott. He is the left hand of Jabba the Hutt as well as loads of other things he's done in his time too. We'll be having a chat with him about that. Plus, we'll be talking to Gary Pollard. He's worked on some very similar projects to uh, Toby. He's a sculptor and, in fact, has also worked on season 10 of Doctor Who. So we'll be having a chat around his work and seeing what he's come up with over the years. And if you do go along and support Science of Cinema, they're raising funds for Medi Cinema, a brilliant charity doing some absolutely fantastic work. So do go and check out what they're up to. And as well as all of that, we've got a couple of tunes from Gene Martin as well to ease us through the show. That's all coming up here on the show this week. Toby Philpott is the man who is the left hand of Jabba the Hutt and also was involved in the facial expressions too. Amongst many other things, we'll find out what as we have a chat as he joins me now. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well and I trust we find you well. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm outdoors. It's a blustery, it's a clear blue sky but the wind is just buffeting about, so I hope that's not spoiling the noise too much. Oh, no, no, and uh, it is nice to see you uh, out in the wild, as it were, uh, as very often you're cooped up in some of the smallest places imaginable as you're operating yeah. creatures on screen. It's true, yes. <laughs> so, uh, um, f- go on. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, I just, I, I, I now live out, out in the country, so this is my, this is, my lockdown is just sitting outside, you know, I'm a bit, it's a bit of a luxury, really. <laughs> well, absolutely make the most of that. Uh, but uh, uh, when it comes down to the work, where did it all begin for you? Because uh, you don't end up in a Star Wars franchise without a bit of experience under your belt. Well, uh, I, I certainly didn't plan to be in the movies. So, that, you know, when people ask me, how do you get in the movies? I don't know. What, what happened to me was that I was a street performer. I was a, a juggler, most comedy juggler, mostly. But I also learned acrobatics and I... I studied everything. I did some tumbling, I did some mask work, mime and things like that. And for those years as a street performer, I was accumulating skills that suddenly came in handy, uh, you know, unexpectedly, really. Uh, What happened was that my mime teacher called me up one day and said, there's an advertisement in the in the trade paper for people to do big creatures for the Dark Crystal, working for Jim Henson and the Muppets. Mm -hmm. And because mime and acrobatics and all that stuff, I was very flexible, very strong, and, you know, also a performer. 
so I went for the audition and although it was quite competitive there were you know 200 people or something they didn't really have an audition um, thing where you, normally in an audition you go in and you show your thing you see but yeah. they were auditioning for people and they didn't really quite know what they needed so it was more like a workshop we'd go in in groups of sort of 20 or something and they would have a sorting of masks and gloves and things around and then get us to improvise performances so um, the minute we started doing it I felt at home because some of the dancers and, and some of the clowns and people were not used to this sort of thing Whereas it fitted exactly with what I'd been doing for like seven years or something. And I kind of knew I had the job almost immediately. It was, it was very odd, but um, I relaxed because I thought if I don't get the job, um, I'm getting a puppet workshop from the Grandmasters, from Frank Oz and Jim Henson. So, you know, for free. So <laughs> uh, that, that alone seemed, um, you know, a bonus for everything I'd been doing up till then. However, I got the job and I worked on Dark Crystal inside the big creatures um, because they were too uncomfortable for the, the Muppet people. So they were hiring us. Uh, and I, you know, if you've seen the Dark Crystal, I, I worked inside a mystic, which is in a deep squat and inside Gartham, which is these big 70 pound shells that you're wearing as a kind of rucksack. But once we were on that movie, um, we all got assigned to a Muppet person as a support puppeteer so that because these puppets were complicated. They, they needed two or three people. Uh, and I got assigned to Jim Henson's team. I don't quite know how I deserve that, but uh, it means that when he's performing, I'm either doing the other hand of the puppet, because he's, he's, one of his hands is doing the head and one's doing the other hand. Right? Yeah. So I'm stuck in his armpit doing the, the right hand, or I'm behind him working the eyes or whatever. So all the way through Dark Crystal, I was getting a, a, a masterclass, if you want, in puppets and in film, so the technology of it as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, led to, that led to Jabba. Basically, it was the next film into the same studio. And a lot of people that were on Dark Crystal rolled over in, onto Return of the Jedi, partly because George Lucas and Jim were working quite closely together. I mean, they were friends, but mm -hmm. they, you know, uh, they pretty made Yoda, for instance. Yep. Um, although that wasn't Jim Henson's creature workshop, he was very closely involved and Frank Oz operated him obviously so um, and the other half of uh, Jabba uh, Dave Barkley who is the chief puppeteer he got the job and he asked for me as co-pilot so um, you know that's I fell into it really I <laughs> you know I was very lucky I did grow up around puppets I mean my dad was a puppeteer but a, a solo puppeteer so you know he had that thing where you he goes inside a booth and then all these characters come and go and talk. He's doing all the voices and all the, the whole performance. There's a one-man shamanistic magic trick, you know what I mean? Whereas suddenly I'm involved in puppets which were, well, they were more complicated even than the Muppets. You know, the Muppets are mostly one-person puppets, sometimes two. Um, some of these creatures involved four people um, because they, were, they had lots more lifelike details, you know, Blink and their eyes moved and things. I mean, if you think about Miss Piggy and Fuzzy Bear, although they seem alive, uh, there aren't any moving parts. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, whereas Dark Crystal was trying to fool you. It's almost a showcase. Having done Yoda, I think, they went, well, what else could you do like that? Where it actually convinces you it's alive, not just alive the way Kermit's alive, but actually alive. You know, when you see Yoda, you don't even think, is it a puppet or is it a little guy? mask or what you know he, it's just Yoda and he's alive and people 
believe that, you know, I mean, really do. And uh, much more so than with CGI, I've got to say. Yeah. There's something special about uh, an actor talking to a real creature. And the same thing is true of Jabba. You know, the CGI wasn't good enough to do Jabba. And I, I think George Lucas might have liked that. He might have liked to have had Jabba walking about a bit more and so on. But once he's settled for the puppet, it actually works brilliantly, you know, because we are acting with the main, with the feature players. Mm -hmm. We get to act with Carrie Fisher and uh, uh, Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. I mean, Jabber interacts with all the all the main creatures, all the main characters. With that as well, though, I mean, even in the uh, the updated, sometimes slightly less popular versions, where we got to see Jabber full length uh, for the first time, um, even then, it is your work that really makes that scene happen. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, when I talk to fans at conventions and things, almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody prefers the puppet version. Mm -hmm. Some some young people uh, see CGI, they play games all the time, computer games and so on. They they buy that, and therefore to them, the puppet is a bit, uh, you know, they see it on Blu-ray and it's a bit rubbery and, you know, they, they don't buy it. But 95% of the people I meet prefer the... the uh, the practical effects, you know, the real life characters. Main reason being that um, you're actually acting with the other actors. They're not standing in a green screen, empty room, talking to a ping, you know, ten ball on a stick. They're actually acting with us, so that when when uh, they change the delivery of their lines, we change our response. I mean, you know, you're actually acting and interacting. And that's important for the actors as well as for, for us, of course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It is a skill that you put into it that makes it believable for the actor. And they don't see you, obviously you can't when you're inside a large amount of latex, but you know, they, 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 they see the puppet, the person, the character that they're talking with and, and not the people who are operating them. And, and how did that then move on to, to future projects? Because obviously Jabba, a bit of a, a, a great one to have in the career, Dark Crystal, fantastic. But what happens next? Well, I, I thought I was in the film business and, and like many performers, uh, I then sat around for six months waiting for the phone to ring, <laughs> you know, because uh, I didn't want to go out and start doing my, my uh, juggling gigs. And, you know, I did all sorts of things, court jester at medieval banquets and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I didn't want to start booking up summer gigs because I thought you have to be available for films. They call you up and say, can you start on Monday? I mean, they, you know, it's... It, it, so I, I put myself on standby, really. I had a bit, little bit of money, and I, uh, my son was only two, so it was quite okay to be at home and things like that. But then, uh, as I say, I sat around and then suddenly realised, oh, wait a minute, I'm not actually a puppeteer. You know, I just had two gigs in films, and I might have to start uh, getting back into proper self-employment. So uh, there was actually one little, there was a, a little moment where somebody rang me up, and said, uh, we're making a little movie called The Company of Wolves. And there's a transformation scene with the, the, the person turns into a wolf. You know, are you available for a couple of weeks' work? And this is on the credits, but it's, you know, it was, it was um, oh, the film business hasn't quite forgotten me. <laughs> uh, it was a bit of a brown, em brown envelope job, you know, like a, a, a cash bung. You know, come and do two weeks' work and we'll, we'll just not talk about it. In fact, I'm only talking about it now because it's long gone. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you can now get away with it. The world that you found yourself in there and uh, the, the interactions that you've, you've, you've had since. I mean, uh, do you still keep in touch with any of the, the guys from uh, Jim Henson's team? Obviously, Jim sadly no longer with us, but uh, still many of those original names working in the industry. Yes, well, what happened was um, 
you know, I, I did work on, I worked with Frank on Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, that was his first directing job. Frank Oz moved on to being a director and occasionally an actor. Um, but, you know, it doesn't go, didn't go back to the puppets. And then Jim died, tragically. And um, because I was more Jim's generation, I think when his kids took over the Henson Company, they sort of hired their peer group. You know, it's quite a natural thing to do. Um, oh, sorry, someone's trying to chat to me. Yeah. <laughs> not now, not now. Go away. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, they, they picked their own generation. And I, 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 um, I was quite happy. I worked on Labyrinth. Um, so I did nice stuff with Jim Henson. I mean, I was very pleased to be, but I'm not a natural puppeteer. I don't, you know, I, I have never practiced lip sync and mm. all that sort of stuff. But, but what do you do then? I mean, how, how do you then continue your career? Because I, I, I know you obviously get involved in conventions. You, you're part of uh, yeah, Star Wars lore and uh, the way the, 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 the series came together. But what, what, what then did you choose to do? How did, uh, how did you cope with, with, with not doing so many of the same sort of things? Well, what happened was the, the last thing I did was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 87. And... Then I pretty well knew that I wasn't going to get much more film stuff because that's there weren't any puppets. I mean, we were puppeteers. We were we were operating the um, sort of with the special effects crew. So if a cartoon character is carrying a real gun, I'm up in the top with a couple of invisible threads walking a gun along. So it's puppeteering, sort of, or magician's assistant, you know, however you see. Mm -hmm. But uh, CGI was coming in. Um, the tax breaks, I think Mrs. Thatcher changed tax breaks and the film business just migrates to other countries if it, if it wants to. So, you know, people were filming in Spain and New Zealand and places. And they, although they bring the stars with them, they hire local talent mostly uh -huh. for, you know, Lord of the Rings and all those things. So some of the puppeteers went on into TV puppets like spitting images and stuff like that. Um, but I... I mean, I, basically, I still was a, a juggler. You know, I was helping run juggling conventions where people all get together once a year. So the first couple of years after the films, I was setting up and running a circus school in London. We squatted a, a big building because jugglers don't need much space, but trapeze artists <laughs> need an enormous room to, to swing around in. And... I mean, it was a legal squat, but we were trying to prove that the country needed a permanent training space. Well, mm. now it's there. Now, now it exists in London, and you can go and get a degree in circus, you know. But at the time, for a year or two, it was just us shooing the pigeons out, putting the windows back in, whitewashing the walls. Um, and then I went to teach in a circus school in Bristol. And some of my students that I taught juggling to decided to set up a circus. So they uh, they bought a, a little big top and some caravans and generator and things. And they asked me if I wanted to run away with the circus. So um, through the early 90s, I was touring on the road 20 odd weeks a year through the summer, uh, all over the UK with no fit state circus. And um, I started off as crew because I didn't really want to be a performer at that point. I would got used to being invisible puppeteering <laughs> things. It's great for an introvert, you know, you, you, your face isn't in, out front. But they slowly talked me into performing, and by the end, I was backstage again, doing juggling and tumbling and clowning and, and stuff. 
so that went to the mid 90s you know so to me i'm a i'm a circus joke. i find it very odd that people think i'm a film puppeteer um <laughs> i spent 20 or 30 years uh doing circus skills um and teaching them as well as uh, performing because in the early days it involved a lot of research nowadays you can buy videos you can buy equipment you can do online training you know as i say you can get a degree in circus now if you want to but um at when, when I started out, there was no equipment, no instructions, no books, no videos. And uh, I had to go around literally watching circus shows and going to variety shows and things and trying to talk to, to jugglers or just try to memorize their act and, and steal a couple of tricks, um, which is partly why we set up conventions so that jugglers could all meet and swap ideas. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's, that's, that's what I'm doing, you know, and the film stuff was a perk. It was well paid. It was interesting. What I didn't know, and this goes back to your, do I hang around with with some of the the puppeteers? When I got on the internet in 1999, I think it was. Um, by then, I was working in the library, and I was their computer whisperer. You know, yeah. The, the, the geek. Um, and my job became learning about the internet so as to help the public and to teach the staff how to use it. So I made a web page and all those things. Within weeks, somebody contacted me and said, did you know there are conventions out there where, where the fans get to meet the stars and so on? And I, you know, it was, it was 15 to 20 years on and I hadn't thought about it. So around about 2002, I think, I went to my first convention with some not very good photos mm-hmm. and uh, people queued up to buy them from me, signed and that and things. And since then, I've done conventions, well, until the lockdown. Uh, I don't do lots. I mean, some of the actors make a living doing this. Some of the big actors, you know, they just get flown around the world and mm. they make a living. For me, it's been um, a bit of fun pin money and it pays for the wine, really. <laughs> um, well, you know, I do, I do about five, maybe five a, a year. Two or three will be local ones just for a charity or whatever. One will probably be on mainland Europe, you know, like Denmark or Germany or something. Mm-hmm. And every now and then I get an exotic one, like two or three years ago, they flew me to Mexico City for five days. Um, or, you know, I've been to the States a couple of times. And those are really big conventions. They're, that's thousands of people turn up. Mm-hmm. So I get the adventure. I get the travel. I sometimes make a bit of money and sometimes not. But I, the most fun is that I get to meet all the actors and performers, you know, from the, from the good old days, if yeah. you will. All the people you hung around with in what, the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, and uh, the, uh, the, the fun that you had then. And it's, it's about that creativity as well, and, and these creative minds are absolutely amazing when you think of what they've, they've done over the years. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's a very interesting bunch of people, you know, they, um, and some of them are still working. I mean, Dave Barkley is a serious puppeteer. He not only builds puppets, but he operates them. You know, he lives in L.A. now, and that's what he does. He makes, uh, makes puppets, uh, performs and is fully involved in the in the business so i mean i owe him almost everything because uh, on dark crystal he was a builder but not the unions didn't really allow him to be a performer by the time we got to jabba he's chief puppeteer he got me the job on uh, who framed roger rabbit and and so on so it's lovely seeing him you know because he lives in la that's too far away for us to, to visit very often but we meet up 
maybe once a year, sometimes if I'm lucky, mm-hmm. uh, here, there, and everywhere. You know, in a different country each time. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and he, he, and Mike Quinn, and various people like that are still in the business, but they're slightly younger than me. You know, you've got to understand that when I was doing Jabber, I was already in my thirties. So I'm 10 years older than most of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I'm just impressed by everyone's creativity. You've got to imagine. I mean, one of the guys that lives in the UK is John Coppinger, who, who sculpted Jabber. And he used to work for the Natural History Museum. So, you know, making dinosaurs and, and whatever. So Jabber's uh, reality, if you want, is so amazing that when you walked in in the morning, he already was quite scary, and that's <laughs> when there's nobody inside moving him. He's just beautifully made, you know, mm-hmm. and looks looks real. So really, our job is just bringing him to life, just getting inside and moving him around. Uh, that's that's extraordinary. And John is, you know, a genius. He's worked on other films. Um, I think he's sort of retired like me now, more or less. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's just been amazing to be in touch with so many extraordinary people. And it's a sort of a, it's a weird parallel universe to me because, as I say, my original involvement was with circus and, and uh, street performing and people. And I still know lots of those people. But uh, it, when I got the job in the library, I sort of slid away from show business generally. And it's only the conventions that keep me involved. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, it's been a funny old life. <laughs> <laughs> but one that you've obviously clearly enjoyed and as, as uh, people have enjoyed your work. And is there anything out there which might be, uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, the, 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 yeah, the, the wolf-related uh, uh, work that's uh, uncredited, but is there anything else out there that we may not realise is you that uh, would be worth checking out? I, I don't really know. You see, the thing is, we didn't record. We didn't have any videos or anything like that. Uh, I have no record of my, uh, of my show, my, my solo show. Mm-hmm. I have no record at all. I mean, I've got literally a couple of photos and a, like a five-second clip that somebody filmed once. Um, so nowadays, you know, you, you actually you audition by making a, a, a tape of your show and showing it to people. Um, so there's very little of me online, uh, very little you can track down. The film jobs, I'm invisible. You don't see me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> If you watch the film with me, I'll go, you see that bit? That's, you know, I was, you see, I was doing that bit. And, um, but, but there's no, there's very little online actually. Um, and, and my, my legacy, if I have any, is things like, not just the films, which is a lovely permanent record, but things like No Fit Say Circus, which came out of a juggling workshop of mine in 1986 or something. <laughs> is still going and is now a massive international company. I mean, they're having a bad year, you know, this year. Understandably. Cancellations. But, uh, I, you know, when I stopped performing with them, I, I did remain in touch with them and I became one of the directors on the board of directors and then, and just watched it grow and grow. I mean, you know, from a, from a UK touring company, they expanded into Europe. Um, about five years ago or something, I, I uh, I did an archive for them. They, they gave me a year's work to compile all the posters and programs and uh, any video we could find and photos and stuff of the 30 years of the company. And uh, that's online. No Fit State Archive is there. And, and yes, I put my hand up. I had a team to help me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I put that together just to trace how 
five students uh, can turn into an international company. You know, because when you say circus, everyone thinks Cirque du Soleil. Well, they started off as a, a company of five street performers. The difference is that the Canadian government gave them a million dollars and said, do what you like with it. And uh, whereas, whereas, and they turned into Cirque du Soleil, right? Whereas we have always been a bunch of uh, travelers, really, you know, uh, uh, and had to earn every penny. But it's, you know, the, the legacy to me, I, I'm not claiming, you know, that, you know, obviously it's all moved on and, and I, it's a whole new team of people. But the legacy to me is that, that I was a spark that started mm -hmm. something like that. And it's lovely to know it still goes on. Um, but I'm not claiming any credit for the, for the quality of the work that, that they now do. It, you know, they, they, I mean, they were in Perth, they were in Hong Kong, they were in New York. I mean, they were, you know, they're really big now. Um, but they still have the dynamic that I like, which was the, the kind of slightly anarchic thing for for non-animal circus they're not they're not cute or quaint like Cirque du Soleil to me with the makeup and so on is is a particular style the uh, no fit state are a little bit more sweaty and a bit more street you know a bit more <laughs> funky <laughs> I just like their you know I'd like their style better it, it resembles what I think of as circus but you know each to their own I mean not I'm not knocking uh, Cirque du Soleil but uh, if you've ever seen a show called Stomp, you'll know what I mean about um, that kind of funky thing. That it just looks a bit more street. You know, it looks a bit more tattooed and pierced. You know? <laughs> and certainly, it's uh, it's very memorable in in, in, in all that it, it does. And uh, certainly, uh, with all the different areas you've worked on, it's it's clearly been a treat and something you've you've very much enjoyed. Now, you mentioned a website. Where can we go to see you online? Well, uh, it's not a very uh, wild website. I used to have quite a big one, but I, I took it all down because it got old-fashioned. But you can find me, it's just tobyphilpot.uk. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, I, I tell people to to just Google. If you Google uh, Toby Jabber, you know, you'll find it. There's, there's, a, there's a, a website, but the, uh, the Star Wars-specific stuff, I put up on a different on a different sort of set. So if you want to see the signed photos that I sell online and all that sort of stuff, just put Toby Jabber signed in, in you know, it's it's easier than giving you an address. That's that <laughs> is <laughs> we'll keep it simple, that's the way we like it. Uh, but for now, left hand man of Jabber the Hut, Toby Philpot, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> Three quarters of us in the UK love playing pranks, whether it's jumping out and scaring people, sending silly messages to someone else's phone, or deliciously hidden secondary remotes to mute the TV when they're not looking. A couple who know about a prank or two are Dick and Dom, and they join me now. Hello. Hello, Hello mate. How are you doing? All good here, and uh, I trust we find you well? We are very yeah. well. Um, Fine. Yeah, you were saying, um, you're saying that we've been pranking for a few years. It's actually 25 years next year, which is... Many years of it. Okay, you're making me feel old, but you don't look old, though, which is, which is the scary part. You two have stayed young. Do pranks keep you young? I think so. I think, you know what, especially nowadays when there's so much to worry about and stress about, I think, you know, just doing the odd small prank with your, with your kids or to your family members just lightens the mood a little bit and helps you feel, just takes your mind off all the chaos that's going on at the moment. And, I mean, this is research that's been done by uh, a sweet maker. Tell us uh, about what they found out. Yeah, we've been working with Mao and Sweets. 
also we're trying to inspire families to, to do more mischief. I think now is the time to uh, kind of start it up again and make it a big thing. Uh, and yeah, um, the new research has revealed uh, that the city in the UK that's the biggest at pranking is Sheffield. Well, I mean, the Midlands does make a couple of appearances. Leicester's in at number five, Birmingham at number eight. Wolverhampton, do, do we get a mention anywhere, even honourably? You're not in the top ten yet, so uh, big up the pranking, Wolverhampton. We need to work on that for definite. Uh, but, I mean, when it comes down to things like, I mean, bogeys, <laughs> are you enjoying playing that in stealth mode now with your face mask on? Because no one knows it's you. Oh, yeah, I can imagine in the classroom it's kind of reached another level because no one's going to know who's shouting it in the classroom, really, do they? The teacher's going to spin around and you just can't tell. The boss went on social media the other day, did you see it, Dom? Uh, there was a picture of a girl with a face mask on saying, this is the all-new bogeys, no one knows that it's you, I'm in the supermarket doing it now. So it oh continues all these years later. It's gone to a new level, but we do not recommend you do it because you're not allowed to shout or sing or, or do no. or project your voice or anything like that. And wear a mask. You can whisper it. Whisper it behind a mask, that works. That, okay, so that prank is one that we may be holding back on at the minute, but what other pranks have you two got up to that have really been worthwhile? And do you prank each other? Well, do you know what? Some of our favourite pranks were from uh, Dick and Dom at the bungalow years ago. My favourite one was a game that we used to play called Eeny Meeny Macka Racka Rare. I don't like a sticker pop and sticky whopper on bomb stick. Where we used to stick increasing size stickers to people's backs without them knowing or about our faces. And they just got larger and larger. And people would be walking around the town centre with our face just engulfing their back. And uh, so that was a great prank that we used to do. In the research, though, we still we found out that the uh, most popular prank is still uh, the prank call to a friend or family member. And, and what's the chosen method here? Well, yeah, no, I, say, I, I think generally that one that Bart Simpson does to uh, to Mo around the, in, in the bar, where he he says, you know, um, can you just check for Neil Down? And he goes, Neil Down is Neil Down here. So I think uh, yeah, giving um, mock names is always a good one. That that works quite well. But I mean, uh, it, it was something like four in ten, about thirty nine percent say a family who laughs together stays together, and that and that's the important thing at the moment. It, it's, it's staying happy, being happy, and uh, yeah, making sure that we we put a smile on our faces. So a little bit of uh, tomfoolery with a TV remote can actually keep the family home happy. I I, I think so. I think there is uh, the kids kids are going through a hell of a lot at the moment. You know, they're watching the parents getting really stressed, finding school hard, they're not being able to see their friend. You know, now you know the the, the ability to be able to see your friend is now getting less and less so it's going to be hard so I think just lifting the mood a little bit by doing some practical jokes with your kids at home will do so much for the household and yeah, doing that brightening life up that's important I mean you two guys have been doing that as you say now for 25 years and uh, that is it's, it's, that's a yeah. scary concept I mean, what's going to happen over the next 25 years anything exciting planned well, for us well I think a couple of years retirement I think that'd be lovely <laughs> be nice yeah <laughs> I think uh, a houseboat down in Devon, I think. That'd be nice. That'd be good. There you go. He's got it all planned. He's leaving me. He's leaving me, Jason. <laughs> but don't worry. You, you can still prank him when he's on this houseboat. I mean... Uh, That's true. Drill a hole in the side. Yeah, yeah. the water dripping in is going to really mess that up. But there we go. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, a moment of uh, one of those sweets I absolutely adore. It's one of my favourites. And tell us a, a bit more about where we can find out more about everything that's going on here. Well, yeah, we've been uh, doing loads of mischief with them this year, so you can find out uh, ideas and tips and how to be mischievous as a family at uh, Fun. Go and have a look. So check out the details online. Moam, M-A-O-A-M. It's the, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're chewy sweets, aren't they? They're- yeah, yeah. Kids' parties, you always see them. Yeah, well, the, the cherry ones are my absolute favourite on those. Absolutely love and adore them. They do the, pin, they do, they do the pin, pinballs as well, the little oh, kind of oh. like slightly fizzy ones. Yeah, are they good? Uh, are those your favourites? They all are. 
Yeah. The cola ones are mine. Everyone's a winner. Right, well, whatever happens, there's going to be a houseboat full of moan sweets at some point, <laughs> isn't there? Dick and Dom, thank you for joining us. Cheers, Jason. Cheers, On the 2nd of October, a single and album are being released by Marty Wilde. It features his daughter, Kim, and he joins us now to tell me more about his work. Hello. Hi there. How are we doing? Yeah, pretty good, you know, considering all in all and tough times we're living, yeah. It's been a strange world this year, hasn't it, so far? Well, you know, I mean, the great thing is, I think, that we, the human beings, we we get knocked down sometimes, but, but we pick ourselves up, dust down, and then we resume, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Absolutely. Now, you are a global rock and roll icon, that's given, that's a standard, and uh, your daughter Kim, uh, pop icon, uh, gardener, and between the two of you, the amount of talent is just sort of oozing from every pore. So uh, what prompted this get-together? Well, I mean, I, first of all, I wanted to write an album. I, I wanted it to be a self-penned album, and I felt it could well be my last album, and I just didn't want to sing all those rock and roll songs. I've done it for years, and I thought, why not do something original for a change? 
and go back to what you were, you know, you were what you are. You're a songwriter as well as a, a rock and roll guy. So, um, you know, that's what I did. And if it, I thought, well, I'll write for Roxanne. Roxanne had been singing with many, many people. With Kylie Minogue, you know, she'd been with Kylie for about ten years, and and singers of that ilk. And and I thought, well. Why not let, well, let's give her some forward music instead of being in the background all the time as a backing vocalist. So I wrote five songs for Roxanne, and Kim joined me on, on one of the uh, of my latest uh, track, which is going to come out, or it's coming out now, uh, 60s World. So that's how the family got involved. And Ricky, of course, my son, he helped me with the arrangement of a track on there called Eddie, which is a tribute uh, to Eddie Cochran. So a, a 15-track album... And what's the feel for this then? I mean, the 60s world, the the, uh, the single, has that got a bit of a flavour of the the old rock and roll days? No, it's kind of, no, and it's a very eclectic, it's it's a huge mixture. It's a mixture. I was always, I'm into so many different forms of music. And so there's, I think there's representation of quite a few styles. There's a rock and roll track on there called Rockabilly Dreams. And there's, there's a, even a reggae track, which I wrote, started to write in 1960 and finished off recently. And, and so there's ballads and there's, there's, you know, there's fast songs and there's, it's just a mixture. I've, I've always been a, you know, a huge amount of influences in my life. I've never been on just one track. I find that boring uh, <laughs> and I like to, to move on to different styles. So that's what I try to do. I hope it comes off. <laughs> Well, the other thing that you've done alongside this is you've opened up the family photo album to to bring more personality to this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as I say, it ended up being kind of quite a a huge family thing. But I think um, in this this day and age and with the times that we're living in, I think families are are one source of of tremendous energy for all of us. And the, the the songs on here, um, they're going to be say there's, there's, a, there's a wide mix of stuff. So at each point of your career and the the music that your family have produced over the years, there is going to be something for everybody. And does this mean you've got a favourite, or do you love all these songs like your kids in the same way? No, I know some of the, some of them I I like uh, probably more than others, but um, I like running together because that was a song really that started it all off and it was a song which I thought um, you know it, it, it meant something in so much as you know that we need each other and running together is whether you know you support you you know you run together with your football team or your or your partner or or, or your best mates or whatever you know it's just things like you know comradeship or love you know it's just a mix of but yeah I'm proud of that one in particular but uh, there are many of the others that I like too very much. And with a 50-date tour planned for next year, uh, this is a chance to, to share this music with the audience as well. And uh, I mean, I, I, feedback from your audiences has been so important to you over the years, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, they, uh, you know they, they, by applause, you can always tell, you know, you, you, uh, only a fool would miss what they're telling you. If they like something, they'll really show it. And, and I've always tried to please my audience, obviously, I've always uh, tried to give them what I felt that they that they would want. They would want on a night out when they see my show. It's not a self. I don't want to do a self-centered show with like, you know, nondescript little tracks or whatever that are very personal to me. I wanted it to be for them, and I've always tried. That's been my my focus uh, all these years. 
And with this uh, release, as you say, coming up in October, uh, one for the Christmas market, uh, tempted to do a Christmas tune too, or is that maybe not something we can expect from you? No, I, <laughs> I, no funny enough, I have written, I've written a, a Christmas song, uh, half written it, and never finished it, <laughs> never finished it. I keep meaning to finish it. I asked Kim if she would write the lyrics for me. Um, but no, no, there won't be a Christmas song yet. But I mean, I love the Christmas songs. I think the ones that are out there already are fantastic. So it's um, yeah, I love Christmas. Nati, I think this is what the world needs. We need you and Kim to get together and sort that one out for Christmas 2021. Would you do that for me? Yeah, I would. I would. <laughs> we'll see what happens on that one. Uh, so with the uh, the album release uh, running together, um, the single as well, which is uh, '60s World," uh, you, you're clearly proud of the work with a with a great team and uh, it, it the family coming together when it when it is so personal can make the music mean even more to the fans as well. I think. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, as I say, just the way it happened, I just started to write. And people, you know, suddenly I thought, why not include Roxanne, give her five tracks? Why not, you know, uh, what, you know see, and Kim asked, Kim actually asked me, could she sing on the 60s well? And I said, yeah, of course you can, you know, and I'd love to, love you to. And then, and then Ricky, uh, very early on in the album, had done a fantastic orchestral backing for this tribute to Eddie Cochran, which I, I, I'm very proud of. And um, so, you know, yeah, we... <laughs> It's it's strange the way it all happened, but I'm so happy that it did. And obviously, this uh, the music of Sixty World is uh, very much a, a tribute and personal celebration to your uh, teenage sweetheart Joyce. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we've been together a long time now. I mean, uh, she's a remarkable woman because she to put up with me, <laughs> you, you you know, people, anyone that puts up with me deserves a medal. So <laughs> I shall, I'll get, I'll have one struck for her. That's the way to do it. And is she, she's loving the song too, I'm going to guess. Yeah, she does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, all good news and great to have some new music from you. As I say, 2nd of October is released for both the single and the album. Uh, you're looking out for 60s World as the single and the album itself is running together. So check both of those out. MartyWild.com. Don't forget the E on the end of Wild uh, to uh, get full details on the album and everything else that's going on. And uh, is the uh, tour already on sale now? Yeah, that's coming in in May. They it had to, obviously it had to be changed from last year because of COVID, uh, but we're, it, it's all set for May, and uh, I can't wait. I mean, I've I've really missed everybody so much. Uh, you know, it's a bit, it's been very tough on everybody. You know, and and uh, let's let's hope it all happens because I can't wait. Well, fingers crossed. We look forward to seeing you on the road. We're looking forward to the new music. Let's take a taste of that now with '60s World. Marty Wild, thank you for joining us. Thank you, and what can I say? It's been my pleasure.
Gary Pollard's work you will no doubt have seen, but chances are you won't have realised it from everything from props through to some of the nasties who've taken over our screens over the years. He joins me now for a chat. Hello. <coughs> Good morning. How's it going then? Uh, because uh, obviously the, the world of uh, movies is a massive one and so many times we require things which are just not of this world. So uh, you are the, the gentleman who comes in and, uh, and brings some amazing things to the screen. Yeah, it's a great job, I have to say, and it's, um, it's very variable, so I really don't know what's going to come my way at any given point. So what, what first triggered you into this? Because the, the skills that you have must have been honed somewhere. Uh, yes, it's actually quite a, a linear route from... Uh, I had quite a turbulent childhood mm -hmm. um, and uh, home was not, didn't feel like a very safe place to be. So I used to uh, get on my amateur naturalists uh, kit and I'd go out and collect specimens and find bones and go in the forests and down at the dunes. So I lived at a seaside town. So there was beach combing was sensational. Mm -hmm. So I loved nature, but also um, long story short, there wasn't much money around when I was a kid either. So you end up getting creative and making things. Uh, so uh, I was starting to make my own toys, my own little creatures out of plasticine. My my brown bowl of furry plasticine was my best friend. And uh, I managed to get hold of an action man and I was um, sticking little makeups onto his face and turning him into everything other than human. He was never a sharpshooter or, a, or you know, like a paratrooper or anything. He was always Planet of the Apes or some kind of monster. So but there's, there's plenty of inspiration out there for you. But yes. obviously you have to take that to the next level. And, and, and where was the, the start of working in industry for you? Uh, it was probably uh, at the third year of my degree course, because I did theatre, because I thought I'd end up, I love to make things. My design work was mediocre. My concept, conceptually, for a theatre show was mediocre, but my prop making and my drawings were, were that, you know, my strength. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I actually didn't like live theatre, so I was nearly thrown off the degree a couple of times because we're never seeing any. But in the third year of that degree, uh, we got into masks and puppets. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I realised that everything that I'd been working on uh, in my spare time was suddenly becoming uh, applicable. So uh, my mask work and my puppetry started to sort of come, creep into that and I started to become you know, slightly more of a known contributor to the course. And in the third year of that, a tutor said, your work is not really theatrical. It's a bit more film-based. You know, you should head that way. And I hadn't considered that as an option before, although I loved the genre movies. Um, and he said, I've got a couple of guys' addresses in the industry. They're, they work in mold-making and other things. Uh, if you'd like to write to them for any advice. And I went, and it's the first time the light bulb went on. Maybe things I love to make could actually be a career. So um, I had loads of hobby stuff and I had some of my theatre work as applicable with the masks and makeup. And I sent a lot of pictures off to a mold maker in the industry uh, who could have ignored me completely, but sent back some more relevant addresses, Stuart Freeborn, the Henson organization, Chris Tucker, who's doing Company of Wolves, Nick Maley, who's doing uh, Life Force. So he said, ask those guys. So my pictures went off to them and I ended up with a series of interviews uh, which went quite well because I was clearly dead keen on you know, <laughs> the work and they, they, they liked me. Uh, and offers came in after that point. And it took nine months from the end of my degree in being on unemployment benefit to getting my first job at the Jim Henson organization on Labyrinth. 
So, so what year was that then? Because that labyrinth would have been. Uh, I was working about 1984. Yeah. And that came out that could be a couple of years later. And I am that old. <laughs> but that, that basically, you're that experienced, which is what counts. And, I mean, Labyrinth must have been an amazing project to work on because there's such creativity. And, and, and you've got to take somebody else's idea and, and build what they're looking for, but with your own input too, to, to make it work because you have the technical knowledge on, on, on the materials you're working with. Uh, yeah, uh, the thing about being a sculptor is there's always some input. And even when you're presented with a, a locked design that someone slaved on for, for months, um, you still have to interpret that into 3D and, and add in loads of practical requirements. Mm -hmm. So you have to reinterpret. Interpret, and in that moment, your, you know, my feeling about it comes in and I take my chance to, to push it a little further about how I think they want it to go and how, how, you know, how they might... Uh, buy into it. So when they first come to you, is it a, an idea on a storyboard um, as, as was maybe a computer screen these days? Yeah, it's always different. Sometimes it's a fag packet drawing, sometimes it's a script and it's all me. Sometimes, as I say, an art department has been at it and you know, and these days there's a lot more. Uh, it's all been designed on computer and there's nothing for you to do. But as I say, there's still practical stuff for me to figure out. So uh, it always comes from a different direction with a different level of um, uh, design input. Uh, it can be my design or absolutely, you know, do not deviate from this design that we're giving to you. So, uh, you know, usually they're open to say, to let me say, it's you like this, don't you? But if I just do that with it, can you see that's more the thing? It's like, oh yeah, got that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they're uh, in a very relevant case of Doctor Who, the latest Doctor Who outfit. They were utterly inflexible to that, which is interesting. It was like, you know, suggestions bouncing off. Like, no, we want this. This is the thing. But before that, usually I get to have my say to a greater or lesser degree. And the designs are, can be very varied. Yeah, and, and I suppose they are based on the materials that you're required to use. And, and these days, with the level of CGI that are run alongside something, because although there has to be physically something there on occasion, actually they could well be computer enhanced by the time they get seen on screen. Yes, uh, uh, we quite like that. I mean, you know, we're not anti-CG. We like um, the cooperation, which is perfect for us, the blending of techniques. So, uh, you know, you put a physical puppet, you get actors that can uh, react to something with real danger. The directors say, yes, if we want it to have real danger and get our actors to be able to respond to something physical, then we build something and put it on the set and film it in, in camera. Uh, and then CGI must match that for the sequence to work, for, to do their bit. And then it works. But sometimes if you leave CGI to their own devices to create from scratch, they're a little lazy and doesn't, doesn't quite work. Well, they can basically enhance what you've got, though, can't they, really? And, that, and that's what yes, can make absolutely. that difference. Yeah, you have a bad makeup day or if you have a, a, a latex suit and there's, like, terrible creases happening that we can't do much about. And it's not so much can't do much about is that there's no time on a shoot to go in and fix and adjust and rechange. They just want to get it in camera and go. So for them to go in and, and do little cleanups, that's, that's nice, too. And when things started off in, in the 80s, I mean, you probably had no idea where the industry was, was going to take you at the time. And, and which are your favourite stopping off points along the way? Because it must be literally hundreds, possibly thousands of productions you've worked on now in some way or form. 
uh, Labyrinth was good because I was aware that I was dumped into a ton of talent, which is uh, uh, nice. And suddenly my learning curve was like, you know, through the roof, which is brilliant time. And I, I was aware of that. And it was Jim Henson's own project and there was time to learn. So that was always felt good, uh, taking all that on board. Mm-hmm. But then you get Little Shop of Horrors, um, which you knew was going to be great. And that's the first time I walked around a super detailed set of Skid Row and really had a look at it all on my own. And just the detail on these film sets is absolutely outstanding. And mm-hmm. it's, I've never forgotten that feeling of, of being in themed environments. And I love that. And I'm creating my own, which is you know, that one-to-one experience. But, but there have been many others um, working on The Storyteller. Uh, and more recently, um, working on Series 10 was fantastic too. Um, doing my own monsters, like with a, a 1984 foot, no, 1990 something, I can't remember what it was, but it was a minotaur mm-hmm. of my own creation. <clears throat> There's been um, too many things to mention, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But so in which case, when you mentioned there the detail on, on a film set, because obviously film has pretty much always been in HD, and you've worked on film and television projects. And, and what's it like being uh, moving from, oh, a rough model would work quite well in TV when it was the yeah, three by four, six, two, five lines. But now the, the detail is completely cinematic when it comes to producing uh, yeah, something like a, a monster for Doctor Who. Uh, well, it's, it was no, there was no jar there, to be honest, because um, I quite like gestural work that has got more to do with the form and the silhouette and the effect of it mm-hmm. and, and not sit on doing every tiny one-to-one skin pause, unless it's an old age makeup. So I like the way it reads on film, and I'm aware of how it is in film, but many of my um, comrades, if you like, love to sit and, and do like detail, 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 and it go on for a long time. And I'm like, it's never gonna be seen. It's a silicon translucent piece and it's in the dark. I know it is, it's in the script. And they're like. <laughs> so the, the work was becoming generally tighter and higher quality in terms of its finish anyway. It's not as if we were, you know, maybe if it was me, you'd we'd be seeing something that was looking a little too crude by now, but um, everyone's work was becoming much more refined and, and careful and, and uh, more suitable to, the, to the, the, the way it's filmed today. So there wasn't any kind of, oh my God, you can see everything. And if you're doing old Cybermen, you couldn't put tape on them anymore, of course. Mm-hmm. So old stuff suffers a little bit. But we absorbed that very well, and it was a gradual process. There's no problems. And it's, it was something that sort of uh, yeah, developed over time. But there must be yes. items and, and props or, or creatures that you've built that you spent yeah, a number of hours on. They've been part of the, the whole scene. But what, what do you think is your best barely seen moment? Which are you most proud of that never quite got the, uh, the screen time it really deserved? Oh. Uh, that happens a lot mm-hmm. because these things fly by and they're over in seconds or just hit the cutting room floor. Um, so you don't care about that as long as, you know, that the, the film has done their job and uh, it's beautifully edited. The acting around it is good. The, the script is good enough mm-hmm. because, you know, a lame script can be uh, uh, make a beautiful job for and a good actor can take a lame script and, and make more of it. But um, in context, if your work just whizzes by or is barely seen, as long as the movie it's sitting in, the framework is good, um, you don't mind because you get your great folio shots 
Yeah. So you, you have it on record. Everyone likes the making ofs. Um, so I've never felt disappointment about something that disappeared or was never seen because you went through the process and the journey to, to do it yourself. So, mm-hmm. and you have some record of it. Yeah, and it, it is all part of, of telling that story. And as you say, there, there yeah. is, there's always a wide angle. There, even if something's fleeting on screen, it makes that moment believable. Uh, and that is your yeah. job, is to make the unbelievable believable, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, I've just remembered um, during the, doing the, I did the first three Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did Aragog as a giant mechanical uh, animatronic. Um, and for some reason, they were a little nervous of it. In fact, the producers were always nervous about um, what to show, what not to show. And maybe we'll just keep the camera off it or switch all the lights off and put it in backlit silhouettes. You can't see it. Um, and they wouldn't show our stuff as much as you, you, you know, we'd like them to. Things like the Basilisk was okay and Mandrakes was fine. But Aragog, uh, the guys um, built in all these moving mouth parts. I had the uh, guys put little bristly things on his head. And the fangs moved, and uh, and his, it was just he did all this great stuff, and uh, the walkout was good. But they just kept off it, and I'm thinking that is such a shame for those the animatronics guys because I know he was beautiful, and he's like you know big nasty spider, and and but they just shot this, and this voice coming out of nowhere, and I thought that was a great shame to not feature that, and I knew that was good. Mm-hmm. But oh no, we don't know about spider speaking, what to do. So, On the other hand, we did the Devil Snare, which you'd think would be a complete CG fest, but it was all physical. Mm-hmm. You know, all these tentacles wrapping around the kids, old school reverses. So you never know with these guys. You don't, but I would say there is a, an awful lot of people in the industry you must enjoy working with doing this sort of thing, as you say. And it is all of these skills that come together in, in, in one. And... Uh, as much as we, yeah, we mentioned CGI, you, you, you're know, pretty much yeah, grasping that with both hands to help build on, on what you're actually making in real life. The, 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 the whole industry it would be lost without the, the likes of you and your colleagues who really make this happen. Um, yeah, that's nice. it's nice the way it's, it's swung back. And now that CG isn't the way it all needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And now it's not the new thing director makes an informed choice so i'm still here still working still doing it i mean it went over to motor sometimes i'm doing cleanups of printouts uh, which is terribly dull but it's all part of my industry too <clears throat> but um you know there, there's still plenty for us to do we've adjusted and um we're still at it we weren't you know disappeared and uh, what would what would you like to work on is there is there a project that you've maybe you know seen somebody else doing think oh i'd love to be part of that or is there something sort of ticking over in your mind that could be a, a creation which you'd like to bring to life uh well the creations i want to do now are of my own uh, creation but in the past i wish i'd um worked with some of their their older stars i wish i'd worked with some of the original Star Trek cast, mm-hmm. that would have been fantastic. It's just my fanboy speaking now. And um, and I'm very disappointed to say that I never met uh, Christopher Lee or Vincent Price uh, when they were alive, which is a great shame, because uh, they got me started with all the horror stars, because I, you know, people say, what movie's got you going? Oh, it's Hammer Films. No, I go way back, you know, earlier than that, a bit older. And I, I loved the black and white sci-fis and then um, was inspired by them. So. Uh, yeah, now I'm thinking a lot about my own projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Star Trek would have been good. 
That would have been a good one. But when it comes to materials though, I mean, how have they changed over the years as well? Because that's obviously shaped what you do. And we touched on, the, on this sort of thing briefly, but uh, clay is clay, but there've been so many different iterations of, of making this stuff. So you can have a, a different material to work in. Yeah, and uh, I'm always, um, I primarily consider um, the effect I'm trying to achieve and I'm not seduced by new products. So if they don't offer me anything, but they've got like, uh, you know, the re-bottled re type of silicon, but I said, well, we had something like this 20 years ago that's that's looking great, thank you very much. So I know, cause I'm old school, I'm not like, and it's more about the forms that I'm sculpting and what the hell they'll read on the screen and not about the fact I've been using now super creature ultra clay. <laughs> and it's like, I, I actually don't care what you're using. And it matters to me, not at all. It's the end result, which is uh, crucial. So um, in my mind, uh, things haven't changed hardly at all. You know, uh, people, uh, the silicon makeups for old age are fantastic, but you, you can't, you know, a huge amounts of it is too heavy. Um, good old foam latex was like, oh no, we don't do that anymore. But then you realize when you come back to it, how lovely and lightweight it is for certain things and, and you know, technically easy to, to artwork and stuff like that. So um, the changes in materials have kind of, you know, I, I go to what's appropriate for the job. Sometimes it's something that we've had for 30 years. Sometimes it's a new thing and I'll take that on board and, and give it a try. As a professional sculptor, um, I, I claim that, you know, you can, I can use any material and ad adapt and adjust to it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I have to <laughs> live up to that, if you like, and take it all on. <laughs> Certainly what you're doing lives up to what is required for screen and then some. And, uh, you know, with, with all the projects you've worked on, it's been uh, an, an amazing journey for you. And clearly it's the talent that's brought you there. What should we be looking out for in the near future to, uh, that's coming to the screen soon? Uh, there's some very silly things, um, uh, some sort of Kung Fu based, uh, movies. Um, I've just done a nice, um, uh, a very quick werewolf suit on for very little money, but, um, the team were so delightful and, uh, and one of my highlights was, um, was having a, a, a lot, let's just say without giving anything away, a lot of dead people that needed blood splashed onto them. And I'm going, I've got my bucket and I'm splashing away, splashing away. The, and, the, and, the, and they're so into it. And they love these people. And they were going, I need more on me. What about me over here? You know, I want some on here. And they're just like, this, just, this is just hilarious. I'm splashing away like chum bucket. And that's like, you know, can I have really good days on set like that? Well, uh, it's obviously an industry that you've got both passion, skill, and a, a massive interest in, and uh, that's reflected in the fine quality of the work that we see from you. Obviously, it's been a bit of a hiatus due to the whole COVID-19 situation this year, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, there's, we, we will see so much more in the future, and we look forward to, to more real-life monsters created. I'm still, I'm still at it, yes. It hasn't stopped. <laughs> no sign of slowing down. Where can we go to see your work? Because I know you have a website. Uh, yes, I have a couple of Facebook pages. I'm doing more teaching now, which is it's nice to be able to share um, information and, and people that are so enthusiastic. That's, that's quite good. So there's archives on Facebook, Gary Pollard Archives. Uh, and there's GaryPollard.design uh, that needs updating, but there's a lot of work on there too. Uh, if you want to have a look.
Absolutely, and I think it's, it's nice to see some of those behind the scenes moments that uh, create the magic on the cinema and TV screen that uh, you're part of. That's a bit like, like this to the teams, you know, you get on a good team, everyone's pulling their weight and making their contributions and the team effort is fantastic. You know, me alone is, I could, a bit of fine art maybe, but you know, when you do a film project, it re requires not just on all the people that constructed it, but back, back to the idea, initial idea, and then the actor inside it was before all the performer. And if they're not doing their work, it's it's dead. Mm -hmm. So I've been blessed with working a lot of a lot of very good people, you know, and the end result from that team effort can be very rewarding. Well, certainly we've seen that on, on what's been on screen so far, as I say, with much more to come. Gary Pollard, thank you for joining us for this Science of Cinema <laughs> event, all supporting Medicare. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you and an absolute honour. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks for having me. Around 4,500 people under the age of 25 are diagnosed with cancer every year in the UK. Since 2004, TK Maxx has raised more than £37 million for cancer research for children and young people. And somebody who's a long-time supporter of that campaign is Dr Hilary Jones, who joins me now. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Jason. Once more, back to it to raise some funds, and this is all being done uh, with the help of recycling. Absolutely, the campaign is called "Give Up Clothes for Good." I love that title. Mm -hmm. um, and what we want people to do is to donate a bag of good quality, pre-loved clothes—clothes clothes that you loved once um, and are still fashionable, uh, but so you no longer want any kind of homeware or accessories to go with them. Bag it all up, take it down to your local TK Maxx store. And they will uh, allow this to be forwarded and sold at Cancer Research uh, UK shops to raise life-saving funds for Cancer Research UK for children and young people. And this campaign has been so successful in the past. And this is a brilliant time to do it because a lot of people have had clear outs during lockdown and beyond. Um, they don't, you know, we don't want that stuff to go to landfills and just get wasted and, and poison the environment. People can enjoy those clothes again by buying them at Cancer Research UK shops and you know, the funds, the, the important life-saving funds goes to fund research which will help find more effective treatments for children's cancer. And not only that, but treatments which leave less long-term consequences of that treatment, so a better quality of life going forward. Yeah, and it is about, you know, less invasive treatments that can still have the desired effect and a, a treatment which can allow the, the, the child to, to live a life at the same time as getting a treatment for something which could be, be life-limiting. Absolutely. I used to work on the children's cancer wards at the Royal Free Hospital in London um, many years ago. And, and you know, it, it's, it's so tragic to see these, these young lives um, devastated by the impact of, of childhood cancer and, and teenagers too. And, and, and it can make such a difference to give a treatment which gives them uh, a, more, a longer survival and, and a better outcome going forward. So things that can be side effects of treatment such as hearing loss and infertility, um, if we can reduce those things, if we can understand the biology of things like brain tumours more more effectively, then it's a win-win. And, and we've made huge strides in better survival rates for children's cancer uh, over the years, and, and we need to do more. Yeah, and, and equally, we're being good for the planet doing this. You're on about uh, stuff not going to landfill. If these clothes get recycled, uh, 8,500 tonnes of peel of clothes have been donated so far, and that's over 190,000 tonnes of carbon that's been saved. So, yeah, it's, it, this is win-win all round. Absolutely. Uh, the environment is 
is better. Um, people are happy to buy uh, used clothes, which still look fashionable and look great. Uh, they're not expensive, but the money accumulates and goes to uh, to help children who've got cancer. And, and that's the, you know, that's really the biggest result we want. So there's a dedicated brain tumour uh, centre uh, that's been uh, highly supported by TK Maxx, the biggest corporate supporter of Cancer Research UK for children and young people. Um, as, as you said, 37 million has been raised over the years and, and we need a lot more. Um, and with that money, we can get research, clever researchers and scientists all around the world um, working on better understanding of cancer and creating better treatments with, with less long-term um, detrimental consequences. Yeah, and as you were saying as well, with the fact that people had uh, time to have a look through their wardrobes during lockdown, they've probably been wearing the same thing around the house quite a lot, and it might be time, whilst it's still fashionable, as we say, to, to move it on, have a bit of a refresh. TK Maxx, a great place to pick up some new stuff, and then drop off the old stuff, which can go and raise some money. And, and uh, uh, obviously, I know you wear a lot of suits, a lot of ties when you're doing your TV work and all the other things that have kept you rather busy during lockdown. I doubt you had any time off, but... Uh, last time we spoke, when you were pushing this last year, uh, we talked about a lovely leather jacket that I think you donated. What have you got to go this year? Oh, I've got a couple of suits, um, and this will sound vain, but uh, a couple of suits that uh, uh, the tailor made put put my name, actually he embroidered my name inside. Uh, so I've got a couple of suits which haven't been worn a lot. It's still nice. Um, and uh, <laughs> my name inside. So, you know, you might find when you're browsing through your, your Cancer Research UK shop a, a suit that used to belong to me. Well, there you go. You look out for it. If there's a nice matching tie as well, because you are known for your ties. So that would be, uh, be good Absolutely. to see. But the important thing is so many people uh, can get together and do something which is basically costing them nothing but is going to save lives. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so easy. If people want more information, go to cruk.org forward slash children and young people. So that was CRUK, which stands for uh, Cancer Research UK, cruk.org forward slash children and young people. And you can be part of this campaign, working alongside TK Maxx, you just nip into the stores, drop off your clothes that you're getting rid of, and then, of course, go and maybe treat yourself to something new as they all come together, work together, and make this massive difference with the funding for children's and young people's cancers with the research being done by Cancer Research. Well, Dr. Hilary Jones, always good to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Take care now.
told. One in three Brits admit they would pay someone £200 to offload their domestic chores if they could. If given the chance, we'd charge an average £205 to give uh, to someone an hour to have our time. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Denise Van Houten. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you, Jason? I'm very well. I trust we find you well. I'm all good, thank you. Good. This is all about how we value our time, and I mean, it is important to to have the you know, a, a good you know, structure in place to know what our worth is. Uh, but I mean, how could we achieve some of these things just the click of a finger? Well, do you know what? This is amazing, and it's been a complete revelation to me because I am always so busy, hundred miles an hour, doing so many different things. And a friend pointed out to me not so long ago that. I was probably paying way more than I should be, especially on my energy bills, and that I should really just sit down, take a moment, and just try and get everything in order. So U-Switch, which is fantastic, allows you to do this in just one click. So basically, you can save money, you can get a better provider. There are so many things you can achieve from it just by taking the time to just do it. It's so quick and so simple, and it's going to save you time ultimately and save you money. And that money then is available for you to spend on what you want, whether it's you pay someone to come round and do that gardening that you've been avoiding doing for the last three years, or whether or not you then choose to relax, chill out, enjoy a bottle of your favourite alcoholic drink. Absolutely. There are so many pluses to it. You know, I was trying to work it out, and I thought the amount of money that you save could actually pay for a holiday somewhere. So why don't we do it? And I think the thing is, Especially us Brits, we're very, aren't we? We just plod along and we're like, oh, it's all right. You know, we just carry on as we are. You know, I know I'm not very good at actually sitting down and taking the time to just go. Because I think you always think it's too much of a faff. This is the problem. So for me especially, I'm like, I know I should sit down. I know I could be getting a better deal. But the thought of actually sitting down and thinking it's going to be very time consuming and fiddly when actually it really isn't because you switch have made it so simple that the likes of me can do it. If I can do it, <laughs> anyone can do it. Well, okay. So you've got a couple of hundred quid. You've just saved it by switching your energy provider. What are you going to spend it on? So with my couple of hundred quid, well, I think I would try and treat the family, especially in current times, everything that's been horrendous throughout the past year. I definitely try and do something, a little staycation mini break of some sort. Because actually, to be honest with you, my daughter pointed out, we haven't had a holiday this year. I managed to have a really short mini break with Mother Half Eddie. But she said, you know, Mummy, I haven't had a holiday because she's been staying with her dad as well, you know, during lockdown and Mm -hmm. everything. So I think with my saving, I would like to do something nice or maybe go for a, you know, get some train tickets, go to a theme park for a day and just create a memory out of the money we've saved. Yeah, obviously we need to do all that around the current uh, restrictions. But, I mean, having the cash there... Absolutely. that, That really makes a difference, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. And I think that's the thing. It's just... It's all the things that we kind of just put on the back burner that need to be sorted out. And especially now more than ever, if you can save money, then why wouldn't you when it's so simple? Like we said, it's just the one-click switch. That's all you need to do. And you can be saving money. And now more than any other time, I think that this is when it's really needed and put it to good use. And if we could extend this to other parts of our world, what would you choose to change at one click? Um, Well, I'd probably sort the wardrobes out because I'm a little (laughs) bit of a hoarder. (laughs) Even during lockdown, all my friends were saying to me, you know, they've got all their houses in order, like their homes in order. And I was like, I kept looking at wardrobes, like my daughter's wardrobe. You know what kids are like? She's grown out of so many of her clothes. So I really do need to have a proper clear out and get bag things up and take them to a charity shop. But it's just the thought of doing it because you think if you pull everything out, you throw it all on the bed, 
And then you just sit there thinking, why have I done this? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, do you get to bring things home from various shows as well? Because, I mean, actress, singer, the presenting gigs. I mean, these all require huge wardrobes. And I think there's another little project on the way which might involve a few costumes too. Oh, absolutely. Well, do you know what? If I get to keep the dance not ice costumes, I'm, I'm definitely going to wear them around the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> this could be it. I mean, this, this could make the cleaning and the sorting of the wardrobe more fun if you can do it on you know, maybe roller skates around the house instead of the blades. But, you know, it could be a really absolutely. good way of speeding it up. And then you've got even more time to spend the 200 quid you save from you switch. Exactly. And do you know what? I try and do something, like I said, nice with the family, just create some sort of memories. Well, it sounds like an absolutely brilliant way of doing it. Where can we go to find out more information? Because we know you're going to be sat there changing your energy provider any time now. Absolutely. So you just need to go uswitch.com. It's so simple. Everything is explained on there. You know, you can read through everything. The service is fantastic. I've used it myself. And you honestly, you will not regret it. You'll be so glad that you did it. Well, Denise Van Outen, thank you for joining us and good luck with Dancing on Ice. Thank you so much, Jason. Have a fabulous day. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us back with episode 589. I'll see you then. For half an hour. Goodbye from the mill bar. 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 Yeah. Goodbye from the mill bar. Yeah.